Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from Juju's Bar and Stage in London, England, the front row seats on the unraveling of the Imperialist Project. Playing for Team Human today, biologist Ted Dropout, author of The Science Delusion, The Presence of the Past, Science and Spiritual Practices, and perhaps most important of all, husband of Tibetan overtone chanter Jill Purse, my hero, Rupert Sheldrake. It's time to intervene on behalf of the people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. There's so much, I mean, I could spend the rest of my life sitting with you, um, but we've got like 40 minutes, so I'm gonna abbreviate a little bit. Team Human is so much about, for me, arguing that human beings are more than the sum of our quantifiable parts. And I think I really first, I first got that from, I had two things happen in my life, two books happen in my life that changed everything. Go to Lesher and Bach, and then uh, your book on morphic, uh, morphic resonance. Because it, it made me realize that, 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 that humans are more than materialism that that and and you've been you've been helping us see how how scientific materialism has contributed to the reduction of human consciousness to basically to programming protocols and i want to play a, a brief 
clip that got you, I mean, it's overstated to say banned, that got him uh, off the main TED channel onto the sub-TED channel. If you can play this, just a brief part of this. The ten dogmas, which are the default worldview of most educated people all over the world, are first that nature is mechanical or machine-like. The universe is like a machine. Animals and plants are like machines. We're like machines. In fact, we are machines. We're lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase, with brains that are genetically programmed computers. Second, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made up of unconscious matter. Um, there's no consciousness in stars, in galaxies, in planets, in animals, in plants, and there ought not to be any in us either, if this theory is true. Um, so a lot of the philosophy of mind over the last hundred years is being trying to prove that we're not really conscious at all. So I guess the, the most important thing uh, for me, and I would argue for many members of Team Human, is what are the best ways for us to argue that there is more going on here than meets the eye, that we are more than the, the materialists say we are? Well, I think personal experience. I mean, we ought not to be, have any experience at all. We ought not to be conscious, as I just said there. Um, if we follow that, uh, if we're really materialistic beings. So I think all our experience goes against that philosophy. The very fact we're conscious at all, and any experiences that actually give us an expanded sense of consciousness that's why I wrote this recent book on science and spiritual practices. All spiritual practices open up our sense of consciousness. And all of these, I think, take us beyond that doctrine. But, it's, so it's not something one argues, it's something one experiences. Yes, I think so. I mean, I've recently read that new book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, about psychedelics. And it's a very interesting book because... Michael Pollan starts out as a kind of regular materialistic guy. In fact, he describes himself as a materialist who believes that consciousness is nothing but the activity of our brains confined to the inside of heads, and the rest of the universe is unconscious. Um, but as an investigative journalist, he tells us he actually has to try psilocybin, LSD, and so forth. And he ends the book by saying that uh, these experiences have completely shifted his view of reality. Um, he now no longer thinks of consciousness as just isolated inside human heads, but more democratically distributed uh, in the natural world. And he actually portrays in front of one, uh, in that book and in his media appearances connected with it, uh, an expansion of consciousness, which is what psychedelics are all about and have been for a lot of, different, a lot of other people too almost as if by moving from one state of consciousness into the other. It's almost the, the liminal space between the two that shows you that there's something else, that there's a background, that there's a, something watching us move. Well, I think it's the realization that our own consciousness is not just isolated inside our heads, which mm. is the standard view. Um, the, all spiritual experiences give this sense of being connected with something bigger than ourselves, a greater form of consciousness. And so I think that's one way to achieve it. The other way is through recognizing that psychic phenomena are real. A telephone telepathy, for example, is a very common phenomenon in the modern world. 80% of people have had this experience. Think of someone they then call. You say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. 
Um, I've done a lot of research on that precisely because it's so common. Most people have experienced it. The standard view is it's impossible, it can't happen, your mind's nothing but your brain, so your thoughts can't influence someone miles away. The fact is they do. And just by paying attention to our own everyday experience, what I call the mysteries of everyday life, we get the sense our minds are much more extensive than our brains. In fact, I think of them as field-like. You know, just as a mobile phone has electromagnetic field inside the phone and invisibly reaches out beyond it, just as the Earth has a gravitational field in the Earth and stretches out, stretching out thousands of miles through invisible, invisibly through space beyond it, I think our minds stretch out far beyond our brains. So you would say that... that the then the brain might not even be the source of any of this. It might be more a, a resonant or an antenna or a tuning fork. I think it is, yes. I think the brain is, is uh, like a tuning system. I think our memories, we tune into them. Uh, I don't think they're stored inside the brain. I think the brain's more like a TV set than a video recorder. And um, I think that the, our brains are more like filters of consciousness than generators of consciousness. They've obviously got a lot to do with it, because damage the brain, and you can get severe impairments of consciousness. Um, but damage a TV set, you can get severe impairments of the picture or the sound or both. It doesn't prove it's nothing but the TV set. Right, and the broadcast signal might be fine. It's just the reception that's... That's right. The, the, the signal may be fine, but if you damage the receiver, then you won't get the picture. And I think that people who lose their memories as a result of brain damage, accidents, uh, brain degeneration and dementia and so forth. It's the receiving system that's being destroyed, not the memories themselves. It's interesting, we're using a, uh, a mechanical metaphor for it, it, in attempting to break the, over, oh, uh, the sort of hyper-mechanical view of, of, of humans. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in how <laughs> in the late 80s and early 90s, so many of us anthropomorphized our technology. You know, we saw humans in it, and we stroked our Macintosh and all, and it seems to have reversed itself where now, rather than seeing humanity in machines, we see humanity as machines. You know, <laughs> we see machines in humanity where, where we have this belief that we've somehow mistaken the map for the territory where we think that the mind is, is computational. Well, I think that the idea that we're machines it goes back a long way. The 17th century revolution in science that gave us mechanistic science was called that precisely because it treated all nature, all animals, all plants, and all human bodies as machines. It was a machine theory of nature. Um, it came to René Descartes in a vision on November the 10th, 1619. Um, and so it has an actual beginning, this vision. Um, he thought it was channeled by an angel, interestingly. Um, um, so, um, he, anyway, this machine vision has become uh, how we think of ourselves. And the computer provides, you know, a, a metaphor for the brain. Um, but I, the idea of thinking of ourselves and all nature as machines is not new. It's the basis of mechanistic science, which has given us the machines, which we then see as actually mirroring ourselves. I think the reason why these machine metaphors are useful for brains and minds is because our modern technologies are field technologies. Old technologies were based on pushing and pulling, levers, steam engines, pistons, that kind of thing. Um, 
since Michael Faraday developed the idea of electrical and magnetic fields here in London in the 1850s, um, it opened up a completely new era of science where science was no longer just about stuff, matter, and forces pushing and pulling it, but about invisible connections between things, the fields, electrical and magnetic fields. And then when Maxwell realized that light was an electromagnetic variation, uh, vibration, uh, it became clear there could be many other wavelengths that we don't see, and that gave rise to the idea of radio waves and so on. So actually these technologies that uh, we can use as metaphors uh, are really about fields, and fields are about invisible connections between things. Um, and that really is the basis of modern science. Modern science is not anymore like early mechanistic science about explaining the world in terms of stuff that's pushed here and there by forces. It's about explaining the visible in terms of the invisible, and the invisible are the fields of nature. Well, it feels like the fields almost feels more like the uh, part of the electronic age or the, the television age. You know, once we got radio, we started to have people doing seances and tuning in to other vibrations and, you know, hypnotism and all these uh, uh, sort of radio and television age understandings of uh, uh, weird realities. But as we move into digital, it feels like it's doing something a little bit different. It's sort of a variation on the mechanistic theme where sort of d digitalism and capitalism and materialism are all kind of mutually reinforcing and, and reducing humans to the util their, their utility value. And, I, and I'm wondering, because uh, it's so heightened now, it seems to be uh, uh, accelerating out of control. If you feel like it's going to uh, come apart of its own accord or, uh, or program us all into some sort of a, a somnambulant state. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that while that's, uh, this is all going on, we have this extraordinary, rather under-the-radar spiritual revolution going on. Mm. 18 million Americans now meditate. Um, you know, countless millions of people around the world do yoga. These things, uh, 50 years ago, most people had never heard of them. 100 years ago, the only people in the West who did them were a handful of theosophists. You know, now this is totally mainstream. And these are about non-digital experiences. Doing yoga is an analog experience. Um, meditation is about getting to the roots of consciousness, experiencing the way minds are actually working through direct experience. And so I think that's all going on as well, and that's what I find so interesting, uh, that this kind of underground spiritual revival is not that underground. I mean, it's fairly on the surface, but it's not part of... The, well, it's, it is part of the digital economy. You can pay money through a credit card for a yoga lesson, but um, it's not about digital uh, experience. Well, for some, it's about, oh, if I go meditate, then I'll be able to be more productive. If I do yoga, it will help, you know, uh, uh, purge some of that digital toxin so I can get back to my WeWork facility and, uh, you know... <laughs> Get more well, done. yes, I think that may be the case, and, and even the case with, with, uh, with psychedelics, you might think here's something that really does alter the mind, but then it's, if I microdose on LSD. Exactly, I, let me trip without tripping, yes. you, know, you know, I did that, I grew, I, I grew a whole mess of mushrooms thinking I'm gonna, now I'm gonna microdose it. And then I see this bag of mushrooms, like, microdosing? I got a bag of mushrooms! <laughs> 
Do you know what I mean? Why didn't I mean I know Mike? I'm sure it's great. There's anyone who's doing it, God bless. But I mean, but, but, but you know what I mean. Don't do it. it don't do it and forsake tripping. You know for it. You know, but it does. It feels so Western and managed. Oh, here's your, you know, here's your microdose. You know, but as, as they used to say in Christian rock, you know, whatever gets them in the door, right? Once they're in, once they're meditating, doing the yoga, then, you know, the experience will change them necessarily. I think so. I mean, I think, I think the experience will actually change people if they, if they do do it. I mean, if they move from the microdose to the uh, dose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember I, I made you uncomfortable back in, gosh, 1992 or something. I was part of a, a GQ article that uh, me and Walter Kern put together about uh, kind of the, the, the archaic revival, essentially, and how uh, you know, it was about Ralph Abraham, the, the chaos mathematician at Santa Cruz, and Terence McKenna, who was still running on full steam, and, and you, and they put all these neon colors around and basically kind of outed you as a, a psychedelic biologist. And at the time, I guess you were still connected enough to the institution that it was scary. I mean, I felt bad. Well. It, it, when I saw luckily, your many, most people didn't seem to have read your article. <laughs> uh, <laughs> since nothing bad happened as a result of it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. A lot of the materialists I talk to, when they talk about consciousness, they say the word they use, and they act as if it's science, the word they use is emergence. They say, oh, once a system's complex enough, then consciousness just emerges from it. So then when our computers are complex enough, consciousness will emerge from it. As if consciousness is the result rather than the pre-existing condition to give rise to matter and complexity to begin with. I mean, how do you, how do you what, what do you think of emergence as a, a, a model of how this is all happening? Well, it's a model, isn't it? I mean, when you're trying to think of how new things come into being, there are basically three models. Either they well up from below, or they come down from <laughs> above, or it's a mixture of both. Um, and, this is uh, Cambridge. That's the way it works. But <laughs> So, emergence is a kind of bottom-up theory of creativity. And it's the idea that you, you have a worldview where you start from atoms and particles and then you work your way up to molecules and then you get life and you little bits of life and then you little cells then you get bigger cells and finally you get brains and then you get big brains and consciousness switches on like a light bulb yep. and a brain gets big enough in ancient Greece or something um, um, so For that white view, yeah. yeah so that view is is the kind of bottom-up view but actually the top view, top-down view is part of science as well. The Big Bang, we start with a unified uh, beginning for the whole universe, where it's all one thing. And then as the universe expands, this one thing uh, splits up and it gives gravitational fields, electromagnetic fields, weak and strong nuclear fields, and so on. I mean, that's the official theory. You start with a grand unified field that breaks down into lesser fields. Then when you form galaxies, Galaxies start from spinning uh, masses of stuff that condense into stars. The galaxy comes first, then the stars, then the planets. You don't start from 
atoms and build up to galaxies. You start from galaxies and build down to stars and planets. And so um, there's also this top-down process in, in, in nature. And it's the same as when you're thinking about consciousness. Does consciousness start from little things? I mean, the attempt to solve the so-called hard problem uh, that materialists have, you know, by saying uh, everything's unconscious, well then, how come we're conscious? The hard problem is the fact we're conscious. Uh, one attempt to solve it is called micropanpsychism, which is to say, well, look, if we have a little bit of it consciousness in electrons and atoms and things, and then a little bit more in molecules and so on, then consciousness can emerge in human brains, but it's not a difference of kind, it's a difference of degree. So that's kind of micropanpsychism. I'm in favor of macropanpsychism. You know, you start with a kind of conscious universe, and you have conscious galaxies and conscious stars. I think the sun's conscious. Um, I think that the, the Earth, Gaia, has a kind of mind. Um, so you've got consciousness above as well as below. You don't have to have it just emerging. You can have it, as it were, higher levels of consciousness descending to lower levels and or influencing them. And would you see consciousness as even coming before matter? I personally do, but it's not something that one could easily uh, prove. Although, actually, that is the official view. I mean, if you look at the leading atheist theorists, like Lawrence Krauss, um, he wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, um, trying to prove you don't need consciousness, i.e. God, before you have a universe. Uh, what do you need? Well, what you need is... Um, a source of energy, the quantum vacuum field which is bubbling with energy all the time and occasionally a fluctuation gives a universe. And you need the laws of nature, all these mathematical rational principles that pre-exist the universe. I mean, my criticism of Lawrence Krauss is that he's so theologically conservative. Um, the, the Christian creation story says you have a ground of being, you have a source of form and order, the logos or the word, and you have a principle of movement or change, the spirit or energy, um, they pre-exist and they give rise to nature as we know it. He has the logos in the form of the laws of nature. He has the spirit in the forms of all this energy that is so much of it, it can just give rise to universes whenever there's a fluctuation big enough, an infinite source of energy. Um, the difference is that he thinks it's all unconscious. But how you can have rational mathematical laws of nature existing in nothing outside space and time and then governing space and time he leaves unexplained well you've also i don't know if you if you still speculate on this but you speculated that the the laws of nature might themselves be changing well yes i mean i think the laws of nature is a hangover from platonic philosophy um plato and pythagoras thought that nature was governed by eternal principles outside nature. And um, that worked all right in science in the 18th, 19th century. They thought the universe was eternal, made up of eternal bits of matter, atoms, governed by eternal laws of nature. Both sides, the immaterial laws, the material atoms were both eternal. But the Big Bang Theory tells us that neither of them are eternal. As Terence McKenna used to say, you know, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And, <laughs> and, 
And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe from nothing and all the laws that govern it in a single instant. Um, so um, I think that there's this idea that they, all the laws of nature were there at the moment of the Big Bang like a kind of cosmic Napoleonic code is simply an assumption, a hangover from that older worldview. We live in a radically evolutionary universe and I think the so-called laws are much more like habits that they evolve along with nature and there's a kind of memory within nature. And that things like the speed of light could change from year to year. Well, I mean, they do actually change as measured. It's one of the things that got me into trouble with my TED talk, pointing right. out the actual data show that the speed of light changes. But it can't change because it's a constant. So then uh, they say, well, okay, well, all the experimental measurements must be errors. So, well, then that leaves you a terrible problem. What's science about? If you discard the experimental measurements on the grounds they must be errors because they don't fit the theory, then how do you know the theory is right when it's supposed to depend on the experimental evidence? Um, did you get in trouble in school? Uh, I did, actually, <laughs> yes. You're a naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, you're, you're in some ways maybe most famous for... Uh, uh, you're writing about morphogenetic fields, and it it has led a lot of people to to explore other ideas, you know, such as uh, that we're in some kind of a we have some kind of a shared nervous system. Or uh, I was just talking about this with uh, uh, Mark Filippi, a somatic practitioner, last week. Something called polyvagal theory, you know, or this this idea that 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 consciousness is is non-local, or not just non-local, but this kind of collective, I don't mean in a Jungian collective conscious way, but that we're, uh, uh, I mean, partly you addressed this before, but I guess the, the mechanics, uh, uh, a lot of people are looking into now, what are the mechanics of, and there, there, there's a, uh, uh, what was the word I just found, uh, end for me, I don't know if you've heard of, of this term, but they, they quote you, this sort of universal organizing principle, that there's no self-organizing principles, but this sort of organized field that, that, that is, is kind of the first, uh, the first ordering uh, uh, force. Well, I mean, this, as soon as we begin to think in terms of these big ideas, people have been exploring these for a very long time. And in Indian mythology, for example, one of the creation stories is that the god Vishnu lies down and goes to sleep, and he dreams. And his dream is this universe. We're inside the dream of the god Vishnu. So uh, that to me is much more interesting the model the, than the virtual reality model. We're inside a computer simulation. Um, I mean, I prefer the idea of a god dreaming to a gigantic extraterrestrial or extra-universal computer with some kind of people programming it. You don't need the mechanical metaphor uh, to get the idea we're in some larger kind of mind. Uh, people have found ways of expressing that through other metaphors and through myths in a way that I find more interesting, really. So the idea that there's a kind of mind underlying the whole of nature, that the ordering in nature comes from some kind of primal mind, is found in Indian thought, Christian thought, Jewish thought, Islamic thought, you know, virtually every traditional system. And, and shamanic uh, societies have all sorts of creation myths where you start from a primal unity. 
American Indian myths, particularly in South America, start with the idea of a primal unity, a primal human that is broken up to form the various animals and the features of nature. So animals are like us because they were originally human. Uh, whereas we have the opposite theory, uh, we're like animals because we were originally animal. Then we have to explain our consciousness. They, they start with something like human consciousness and something like humans as part of their creation story. So did we, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it's just a question is where we, how we ended up. Uh, it's funny, I think back to the, uh, the time I visited you in the, in the early 90s at Hampstead Heath. And uh, it was a big deal for me getting to come and meet you live and all and come into the house and uh, meet Jill. Meet Jill Purse, your, your wife, who uh, she, and I had never experienced anything like this at, at that point in my life. She did, uh, uh, she had a, a Tibetan bowl, made this sound with it, and then she did overtone chanting. And it's the first time I had heard anything like that. And I mean, it's so experiential, you know, and there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of overtone chanting, but there's this note, but then there's this other secret note that you start to hear that's moving in, uh, I don't know, thirds well, we, or... We could ask Joe to... to <laughs> <do> well... <laughs> it depends what she's, uh, what she's up for. Um, uh, do, can, do, will you? Would you? I mean... <laughs> and... The question I want to ask about it is, were you like a regular scientist who then got exposed to this? And then that, that opened, but, but let, let her do it so you can see what it is, what you can see what it is I'm talking about. <laughs> so I hear that and then they put this book in front of me called Spirodynamics, which looks at the, the, the shell shape and Pythagorean thingy, spiral, blah, in everything. And I'm like, oh. I now, I was like, now I get it. I mean, so, so I painted this narrative in my head that you were like this nice little Cambridge biologist guy believing all these things. And then you get married to her. Or infected. Infected. <laughs> broken, transformed, and then somehow you put together all of those years of scientific training with your, your, your exposure to the field, and this is what happened. Um, <laughs> well, um, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> so you had intimations no. of this before. Um, yes, when I was a fellow of a college in Cambridge, Clare College, I came up with the idea of morphic resonance when I was working on development of plants. I started off from botany. I was working on relatively innocuous subject of how leaves form and how roots form in plants. And I got interested in the idea of 
morphogenetic or form-shaping fields. And I came up with the idea of morphic resonance um, in 1973, very long time ago. Um, it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to pursue this very effectively in the Department of Biochemistry, where I was working. Um, so after a while, I resigned my fellowship, and I went to work in India in an agricultural institute, where I worked on crop development, improving crops in the semi-arid tropics. So I wrote my book in India, A New Science of Life, and I then actually met Jill in India. I was asked to speak at a conference on ancient wisdom and modern science, and Jill was speaking on ancient wisdom, and mm. I was speaking on modern science. Um, so um, uh, that's where we actually met. So I'd already, as it were, gone off the rails before I met Joe, but, uh, <laughs> but she uh, didn't help get me back on them. It has to be said. <laughs> it's funny, the, the, the work that you're doing also, and we haven't talked about it much, but it's largely about compassion. You know, when, when all is said and done, you know, whether it's uh, being able to, to resonate or, or be in touch with the morphogenetic field or experience, the even, even experience and tolerate the fundamental change that's going on all the time. Uh, it feels like that kind of compassion is at, the, is at the heart of what you're doing. Well, I don't often use that word, but I, I think that the, um, it's about connectedness. It's about how things are connected to each other and a, a kind of holistic view of, of the world. And compassion is much easier if you feel connected to other people. Uh, if you feel disconnected, then it's much harder to be compassionate. Um, you know, being kind... Uh, is the word kind is the same word when we say what kind of thing is it or kindred or kin it's the same word and typically all animals are fairly kind to their kind you know lots of parents not just human parents but in millions of species parents go to a great deal of time and trouble looking after the young and protecting them they're prepared to die to protect their young in many species um, and they protect them because they're related. They feel closely related. They usually treat other animals as enemies. And in, among humans, it's natural to feel kind towards people to whom you're closely related. Lots of parents spend a lot of time looking after their children, and then later their children look after their elderly parents, and so on. Um, the, the, the stretch is to recognize that we're related to other people who aren't part of our immediate group, and then that we're actually related to other forms of life on the planet, and we're related, the whole planet's related to the solar system. If you're just kind to your nearest and dearest, you can be utterly unkind to everybody else and not care at all about the planet. So I think it's a matter of enlarging our sense of relatedness and connection. Right. And I so think that's where spiritual practices play an, an essential role. Right, and people end up fooled into protecting their families at the expense of everyone else in the neighborhood so they can externalize harm to whoever because my baby's got to get into college, you know, or whatever, whatever yes. they're thinking. So I want to I wanna give, as long as Jill Purse is here, give you a mic, and I've got a secret extra mic here for later. Um, to, to Jill... To be here. Yeah. Oh, um, 
Yeah, it'll work. Um, so, so, Jill, is there, is there, I'm sure you've had to do this before, so I don't even feel that bad asking. Can you uh, kind of explain to us what the, the sort of the mechanism of overtone chanting is? In other words, what does it do to us to hear it or to, or to, to do it? Well, um, it allows us to be in tune, first of all, because Western music in the 17th century was made out of tune. The well-tempered scale uh, made all the intervals in the uh, octave uh, stretched or squashed. So all music since the 17th century has been out of tune. And so with the overtone chanting, you're chanting on a single note, and you're using your resonant cavities to allow the harmonics, uh, the notes within the notes to become audible. And these, because they come about through, um, uh, through resonance, they can only be in tune. So the sounds that you're making are in tune, which means that your sound in mind and body, you're not highly strung, you're, uh, you're in tune. And you're not only internally coherent, but you're in tune with nature, you're in tune with everybody else. And, and you're hearing the sounds of your own geometry being made audible. So that's one thing. Um, and another thing is that it's a very powerful meditation. So you're, you're compressing the breath, you're doing a kind of kumbhaka, you're sitting on the breath, and you're elongating your breath. And, um, and you're becoming aware of, so a lot of meditation techniques involve becoming conscious of normally unconscious processes like breathing or walking. So with this one, so if we, if we, if we, speak, we, if we have an idea, our tongue waggles and we kind of hope somebody gets what it was that we were thinking about. But if we uh, redirect our awareness to the movement of the tongue, our mind becomes spacious. So it's kind of redirecting the focus. And so, so becoming aware of these very infinitesimal movements allows huge mind expansive processes to happen. Um, I mean, it feels to me as if, you know, part of what we're dealing with as a society is our, uh, and, and we can call it archetypally male, but really our need to sort of dominate, say what's going on here, apply laws, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, somehow, as even uh, uh, Bacon would say, you know, kind of tame or rape or control nature and push it down and, uh, uh, or escape from the masses as the billionaires want to do. And this, this other way, uh, uh, not, a, not a passive way, but a, a, a way of resonating with, with nature and becoming whole with it and, you know, living healthy and happy and connected and loving and all that. I mean, it seems like the, the, the practice that, that you're sharing with people is, is sort of a, 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 a very clear, direct, practical, experiential way to actually make oneself more open to the sort of the, the worldview that you're describing. Well, your, your, your sound creates um, form and the same sound dissolves it. And so when you, so I'm really only interested in chanting together. 
And so when you chant together with other people, you dissolve the boundaries, not only between spirit and matter, but between you and them. And you create community, sonorous community, which I think is essential. So, and that's really the point, uh, well, one of the points. And is it, is it different of people chanting together, doing overtone chanting together, than people singing Amazing Grace together? Well, I think so, because if you, if you sing words, you know, if you, you can be singing the wrong ones. You know, if, you're, if you sing a national anthem on one side of the border, you're singing the right one. And if you step over the border, you're singing the wrong one. And also, I'm, this way of using sound is to go beyond the contents of the mind into the nature of the mind. And if you're singing words, you're, you're contained into sort of discursivity and you're, you're thinking and thinking about what you forgot to listen to yourself chanting while you are on, you know, if you sing a, if you sing a, if I sing a hymn, then I'm, I realize I don't listen to the words and I get to the last verse and I realize I haven't a clue what I've just been singing about. So I scan verses one to four while singing verse five and I don't know what verse five was about either. <laughs> no, and the boundaries dissolve. I mean, we're, we're out of time on this segment, but I really want to, want to thank you both for, for helping us see that, you know, human individualism is a fiction, you know, that, that both experientially and, and uh, experimentally, you know, we're learning that we are in a collective reality and, and none of us is alone. So thank you for that. It's, it's, it's reassuring and... Uh, gives me some hope for the future of this collective organism. So Rupert Sheldrake and Joe Purse, um, thank you so much for being on Team Human. You're on Team Human. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. You are not a number, you are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and like it or not, we're all on Team Human, coming to you alive from Juju's Bar and Stage in football craze London, England. Today's show is a co-production with Virtual Futures, and in that tradition, I'd like to bring Pat Cadigan back on stage so my guests can engage with each other and our audience directly. So what I would love to start with, and it's kind of... It's thing that's been tripping me out. Wait, 847, we're good. We're good on time. You're tripping too, huh? Yeah. yeah. I'm tripping right now. <laughs> I took a lot of LSD in college. At least I think it was LSD. And it helped. All right, this that's is the tax. problem with it illegal drugs. You never actually know what they are. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, now you can. Um, if you grow mushrooms, you can know what they are, as opposed to uh, uh, these little tabs. This is another, I'll explain it later. Um, so one of the things that, you've been, that, that you were talking about on, in, in either the TED Talk or one of the things, oh, in the book, um, you were explaining how we think when we're looking at something that we're seeing that thing out there, but that what we're actually doing is there may be something out there, but we're also projecting reality out as we do it. And it started, I was listening to that at the same time that there was something, I was multitasking, something else on my computer about the male gaze. And all of a sudden I started to think, well, the male gaze is not just a passive 
act. If what you're saying is true and we are somehow creating reality out there as we look at it, then the male gaze is active. Well, and the female gaze. Right. Um, the, um, anyone's gaze is, I think, a projection of the visual world out to where what we're looking at. When we look in a mirror, um, that projection goes straight through the mirror. That's why we see things in mirrors. And so I think that outward projection is active, and that's precisely why people can feel when they're being stared at. You know, most people, almost everyone's had the experience at some time or another of feeling they're being looked at from behind and turning around and they're being looked at, or looking at someone else and making them turn around. So I think this very well-known phenomenon is a real phenomenon. I've done lots of experiments on it. I've summarized them in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At. Um, and, uh, very logical <laughs> title. <coughs> very good. Yes, it does say what it's about. Um, um, and um, so th I think this phenomenon, which almost everyone knows, including almost all children, is telling us our minds are much more extensive than our brains. And oddly enough, it's been almost completely ignored within official psychology because it doesn't fit the standard worldview. But, and do you think, uh, Pat, do you think the sense of being stared at, does it extend into media, into technology? If people are all staring at your Facebook profile, will that... Well, they better be. <laughs> but does that affect the, uh, the subject of it? You mean me? Yeah. Does that affect me? In other words, well, first, do you, do you buy the idea of, of that being looked at is, it affects the, the object? Okay, my personal experience... My mother told me that uh, I was a beautiful girl. I grew up to be a beautiful woman. I was going to get stared at. So I should assume that unless I had, you know, I was alone in the room with the door locked, I was being stared at. And uh, so that's all I can tell you, you know. It's like women generally are stared at, you know, and we, we get used to that. We get used to being stared at critically. Um, I was picking up a friend at the airport one night, and uh, and I was eating I was eating an ice cream bar. It was like the first food that I'd had all day, and a man walked over to me and he said, "A minute on the lips, a lifetime on the hips." And I said, "Well, that may be true, but it's tacky to point it out." <laughs> so. Um, you know, I, I just don't give it much thought, you know? It's like I, I, I'm, busy, I'm busy staring at other people, you know? I'm busy looking around. I'm not that concerned with who's looking at me unless they're doing it like maybe through a scope with a sight on it or something. <laughs> right, and, with a little and, red dot yeah, on Yeah, and you. a little red dot. Yeah. You know, it's, and, you know, it's like I don't have much control over that. So um, I tend... I've always been very busy. I've always had a lot of things that I have to do. So I tend to uh, kind of discard the things that I have no control over, including who might be staring at me and who might not. Um, if someone is staring at me long enough and they want to say something to me, they'll come over and say it. I'm wondering, as you as you heard each other up, up here, did you... Uh this is a way of getting you to do my work for me. But did you have, <laughs> did you, did any questions 
come up for you that you would want to ask Rupert or to some? Did 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 Pat talk about something that you'd want to to? He's explore putting us on the spot. In, Can you believe this? Well, as he says, it's a simple yeah. way of doing his job. Yeah, outsourcing, mm -hmm. crowdsourcing. Yeah. You wish that's a crowdsource. Here we go. Yeah. Well, we got the real crowd here too. Well, I was interested, Pat, in your imagination. How do, do, do you, whether you, whether you dream these things or sit down and make up stories? I mean, how do you? That was the bit that was going through my mind. Oh well, see, um, when when I'm walking down the street or sitting here like this or, you know, doing anything at all. Eventually, I realized there's a running commentary going on in my brain, and it would throw out ideas. What's that car, you know? What, who painted that car? Who dented that car? What, where did they get that raincoat? You know, it, and it, you do this all the time. And some of the things are very, you know, trite and kind of, you know, mundane. But every so often, your my mind anyway will throw out something, something that I want to remember. So I always carry something to, you know, to write that down with. And uh, and the idea doesn't always come right away. Um, chance favors the prepared mind. Serendipity. And so if I, you know, I, I, I have a, I have something called a fragment box, and it's full of, I have a virtual fragment box and a real fragment box. And the real fragment box is full of, you know, papers and things and unfinished stories, and also uh, bits of ideas that are waiting to get ripe or waiting for the right time. Um, I did write one story about, uh, that, that came out of a dream, it was kind of bizarre because I dreamed that I went down to the local jail and bailed out a random prisoner and brought him back to my house and forced him to do my housework. <laughs> and I ended up writing a, a story called Mother's Milt about a woman who does that. And, uh, um, and event this is how she gets employees for her house cleaning service. And uh, her 16-year-old daughter holds a gun on the guy while he does the housework all day. <laughs> it, Someone's going to do that. You had to be now. there. Yeah. <laughs> but, we... but dreams are, are, actually, dreams are how I know I'm okay. Because, and I'm out about this too, I'm clinically depressed. And I've been, uh, and I finally hit the right cocktail uh, of, of medications I don't recommend it for everyone. If you can, you know, if you can manage without medication, do it. But if you need medication, get it. And uh, I know that I'm okay when I dream all night long. I'm busy all night long. It's a, you know, it's an epic adventure all night long. And uh, but if I have several days in a row where that doesn't happen, then I know that there's something, there's something a little wrong with me. But uh, dreams are how I know that that's my barometer for mental health. It's really interesting, yes. Uh, because, and the thing is, it's like, I'm still dreaming. I, everybody dreams all the time. But if I don't remember them, then something in my sleep cycle is symptomatic of something that's, that's, uh, that's gone wrong with my mental health. So I, I, I like your idea that the mind is bigger than the organ of the brain. And I really believe that the brain is bigger than the sum of its parts. I mean, it's so complex, you know, and it is 
capable of such beauty and compassion that um, I, I started to think of the mind as kind of a field generated by the organ, you know? And I thought, maybe the mind is a field. Maybe the brain generates a field that you call the mind. And because the brain and the mind are, are you get problems with the mind if you injure the brain. But also the brain is capable of redirecting itself, in some cases in damage, so that uh, people who have been hurt in speech centers can learn to speak again or, you know, or, uh, I don't know, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't know, but the brain has a way of working around problems. A regenerative capacity, as indeed most parts of our body have as well. And hopefully most parts of our uh, society, mm. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, that's what I'm, I'm banking. Are you, are, are you, you're generally optimistic about our ability to, to get out of this mess and move through into some happier place. And are, are you maybe are, are less so? Do you think we're going to make it out of this? Well, someone, uh, uh, when my, uh, my story, the girl thing who went up for sushi was, was up for Hugo. Another writer read it and he said, this story was, it, this was the only story on the, in that category that was optimistic about the future. And it wasn't that I'd said everything was going to be all right. It was that I had showed a society working with its organ, in its organization and, you know, with the scientific advances. And everything wasn't going to be all right, necessarily. But eventually, everything was going to be all right. And you know, actually, everything isn't going to be all right. You're all going to die. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy life while you have it. And enjoying life doesn't necessarily mean, you know, hedonistic indulgence. Um, it can mean enjoying knowing that you have the capacity to be generous, to be compassionate, to share, to educate, to leave your little corner of the world better than what you found it. Rupert, do you agree? Are, are we all going to die? <laughs> or can the laws of biology change in the next... Oh, well, uh, I, I think we're all going to die, but I think a tiny minority of millionaires are going to have their brains preserved um, when to what end? Right, until right. someone gets fed up with preserving them. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't that count on anybody that. myself. <laughs> Do we... Uh, uh, yeah, I want to come for questions from our fine audience. Hi, I'm Alex Holland, and I'm starting a science fiction publishing house called The Utopists which is supposed to inspire the radical social change we need, yes, Pat, and, uh, by telling stories. I'm in favor of publishing houses, period. <laughs> so good on you, bud. Well, wait for it. Wait for the rest. <laughs> it's going to inspire radical social change that we need, Team Human Style, by telling stories of love, death, and drama, but set in worlds where has gone right. So, for example, like a detective story set in a world where it's like a 21-hour working week. She's only got so much time to solve the case. Clock is ticking down yoga class but anyway the thing i was going to say is that um uh, well, i see you're already supportive i say what do you think about this because you're saying that 
most of you were saying a lot of your drama and your narratives had been warnings about what might go wrong rather than like maybe images to inspire people about the world we might make oh, I together. Think my, I think my, my stories are very inspirational in that uh, there are warnings about what can go wrong, but uh, there, are always, there are also ways in which you know, problems are solved and things go right for people. I'm sorry, but once upon a time, everybody lived happily ever after is not much of a story. So you have to have, I'm in favor of showing things that go wrong and then trying to fix them. And sometimes trying to fix them makes them worse. But um, then you have to fix that. And, uh, you know, it's one thing after another. And you'll find this out now that you're a publishing house, believe me. <laughs> but um, uh, I'm, in, I'm in favor of, you know, it's like positive stories where everybody doesn't die violently and, and the world is sh and there's nothing we can do about it. Sir, put back here. Hi, so uh, really been enjoying your uh, talk so much this evening, and thank you as well. Um, uh, but forgive me for not knowing exactly how to form the question, but I guess I'm really inspired by the way that you think and you've both enjoyed being able to think very differently and radically from other people. And I think that must be very addictive for you guys. You must get a kick out of it, the way other people, maybe including yourselves, might get kicks out of drugs. So my question is sort of, why is it that it's not more prevalent in society that people like thinking in, in these aggressive or divergent ways? Why isn't there almost a, a need for it to be more prevalent? Well, actually, there are, people are thinking, you just don't hear a lot of it. You know, it's like, we're here, we're, you know, we're visible. And it took me, you know, 40, over 40 years to get this visible. Believe it or not, did all myself. But um, uh, people need to feel like they have a voice and they can use it. And, uh, and I just believe in encouraging people to express however they want to, they, they can express, whether it's writing or art or dancing or composing music or, you know, I don't know what else. There, there are, you know, there are all kinds of, of possibilities with, with new technology that, uh, that you can make art in so many different ways. And we're all kind of discouraged from doing anything that we're not good at. Um, my mother, my mother starved herself to give me ballet lessons when I was five. And it wasn't a ballet academy. It was, you know, a neighborhood studio, you know, store, uh, shop window studio. And, uh, um, and <laughs> because I had ballet lessons, they discovered uh, a year later that I had this horrible um, heart defect and I had to have heart surgery. And I was out of the hospital a week earlier than every other kid because I had ballet posture. And, and I was thinking, you know, every kid should have dance lessons. And I, I kept taking ballet because I liked dance and I liked movement. And I didn't care that I wasn't going to be a dance with the New York ballet or the Bolshoi. 
And then I get into playing sports, you know, and then I get into other kinds of dance. And people are discouraged from dancing if they don't dance well. And actually what they should be encouraged to do is move because everybody needs to move around. And if you don't like dancing, you can play basketball or you can play baseball or you can just run by yourself. But, uh, but there's, it's such a crowded world that people don't feel that they can sing even, you know, if they don't have a good voice. And, uh, and I'm not going to sing because it wouldn't even sound as good as Jill, believe me. It doesn't even pass as, as like overtone. But, um, but I used to sing all the time, you know, and it, you should do that because it feels good to sing. But we're discouraged if we don't have a good voice. Well, I say if you've got a voice, it's good enough. Is there, is there, what was the question? <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there a question from a woman before I... Well, shall I try answering that too? It's a, I think I agree with Pat that most people feel disempowered. Um, but I also know from... I'm, I'm interested in the natural world, animals, plants, etc. There are a lot of people who just aren't very interested, you know, in... in what's out there. Um, and I think that's a personal thing. A lot of people are primarily interested in gossip and what's happening on reality TV and that kind of extremely personal and human things. And not everyone's interested in the non-human world. And I think that's just partly a matter of temperament. But if you are, and if you're interested in the scientific world, there's so much information out there. You go into any bookstore or sh sh shop and, or look online and there's millions of books and papers and information and most people just feel disempowered. You know, how can you possibly know about all this stuff? So I think it sort of reduces people's ability to, to think. Um, nevertheless, there are a lot of people who really are thinking about things. And I mean, Terence McKenna, for example, who was a very good friend of mine, was um, a highly imaginative person who had a wonderful way of speaking and stringing ideas together in surprising ways. Had a huge following. Um, and even today, lots of people listen to Terence's tapes online. And when my TED talk that we all saw a little bit of at the beginning was so-called banned, it had 35,000 views. It's now had about 5 million views. And these are all transgressive ideas in science. And uh, you know, people may have just been wanting to see why it was banned, but the fact is a lot of people are very interested in thinking about ideas. The trouble is that our, I mean, we have an educational system, after all, which is telling people lots of things all the time. Everyone goes to school and university, and, uh, you know, when you go there, every day you're getting new information and new things to think about. So it's not as if there's a shortage of things to think about. It's... Um, but it takes an uh, amount of time to realize what are the conventional ideas, what are the unconventional ideas, and not all the unconventional ideas are good ideas. And uh, you, know, this, you need time, leisure, and interest to do this, and not everyone has that. Well, the educational system fails, mm -hmm. too, because often they stifle curiosity as much as they stimulate it. Mm. Yep. We've got a question back here. We'll just do like two more questions. 
Hi there, my name's Anushka. Um, Pat, it's so lovely to hear you speak, and I'm delighted to, to listen to the conversation you had okay, with Okay, you're doing well so far. And <laughs> Rupert, my question's for you. I'm of someone of Indian heritage, and I've done a bit of research. I'm in the space sector, and I've done a lot of research around, um, just out of interest, I'm not a professional at all, around meditation and transcendence, and it's something that's been an art form in India for millennia. There's other things that I've uncovered in my research, and that's the depiction of um, UFOs or devices that have been used for um, like travel in our great big ethic, um, ethic or oh, ethical mythological stories. But the other, the other really interesting finding that I found was that they talk about when you're talking about meditation and transcending that you can actually transcend our multi-planetary and multi-universe planes. And there are planets that you aspire to meditate in your lifetime to join and transcend. So if this is something that has been written in an Indian mythological or actual religious text, what are your thoughts on that? Are we in a simulation right now? Or is this something that humanity is only just waking up to realize as being something that we know of? Where do I get a ticket? <laughs> um, you know, I... I don't, I don't feel really equipped to answer your question because uh, my uh, meditation extends to mindfulness, kind of. And I would often treat dance episodes as a form of meditation that involve physical and, you know, and the mental uh, doing, you know, getting into the zone, I guess. And uh, um, when I uh, when I was diagnosed, my um, my psychiatrist I went to see my psychiatrist because I figured I better talk to her about this, and she suggested that I look into mindfulness and and gave me a few names of books or programs that were on uh, uh, you know apps I guess, and um, <laughs> this is beyond me, it really is I'm uh, I'm. I'm open to the ideas. I'm just not sure how to get my mind around around it. This sounds this sounds like a job for you. I, I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you you know, but you don't think we're in a simulation? Oh, yeah, or, or Rupert? Rupert? The... I don't think we're in a simulation. No, I don't think. A simulation means pretending to be something else. I think we're in reality. We're going to do two more. One from uh, this gentleman here. Oh. Awesome. Hi. Um, yeah, so humans are like um, represented as being a bit left field in here, right? So I'm wondering, as it's an ongoing battle, who are the other teams? Who are we playing? And who are their coaches? Well, maybe that's something I should answer. I mean, as I see it, being human is a team sport. And the stuff that's on Team Human or any, is anything that brings us together. And anything that divides us is not on Team Human. You know, and I, I, the real enemies to Team Human, I don't think, are human. I don't think there's an us and them. Right? But I do think that some of the things we create to do one thing, like, say, education. You know, public education was originally to compensation for 
the life of a worker. That if you're going to be working in the coal mines or doing, at least you're going to be educated. You're going to be able to read. You're going to be able to have some quality of life. You're going to be an informed electorate. And what does education become, at least in America? An extension of work. Education is job training. We go to college so we're prepared for a job. IBM and Google are going to the colleges and telling them what to teach. So it's become an extension of work rather than a, uh, a gift back. So what happened to education? It reversed. The internet, it was a way to connect people in new, weird, fun ways. Moves that we went into, the places that we played. The internet was, was remedial help for a society that had been so desocialized and individuated by television that they, they could only feel safe talking to each other online. And then we came out and like, oh, you agreed with me. Oh my God, I can talk now. So, and now what does it become? It's become the algorithmic, you know, uh, uh, isolating reality tunnels of Facebook. So Facebook, I would argue right now, Facebook's an enemy of Team Human because it's dividing us, confusing us. It's, 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 it's disengaging us from one another and from reality in order to uh, uh, promote addictive and more predictable behaviors. Oh, now, I, I don't agree with that. I'm sorry. No, you don't have can to. Can I still play on Team Human? You can. You can. We can all disagree on Team I mean, Facebook's going to be different for different people, obviously. Yeah, it, well, you know, yes, Facebook has the capacity to do that. And I realized that for a long time, Facebook was Satan. But Facebook also uh, has the capacity to, you know, round up a whole lot of friends at, at a you know, in a day's notice, who will offer some kind of support to someone who needs it. People who are about to lose their homes mm -hmm. have, you know, it's like they put out a call for help. One of their friends has called for help on, on Facebook, you know, and they aren't homeless. There are things oh, like absolutely. that, that, that. If you even look at what, what Ariana Grande's fans did on Instagram after her concert, I mean, if that wasn't love on a platform, I don't care what Instagram was designed for, if that wasn't love coming out on that platform, you know, I don't know what is. So yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's what I was trying to talk about in the, in the opening monologue, that part of being human is being able to embrace the ambivalence. It's both. It's, you know, Facebook is both, you know, fabulous well, you and you know, it's like tragic. The internet has, you know, has the possibility for great evil and great good. And, uh, and they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that makes it sound like the road to heaven is paved with bad intentions. <laughs> well, it isn't. All the roads are paved with good intentions. Watch where you're going. <laughs> Thank you. And now, um, for our last question from uh, Ghislaine Boddington, who is uh, episode 50 or 60-something? 60 69. Oh, my gosh. The winner. Episode 69, Ghislaine Boddington. Thank you. And I am on Team Human, yeah. So <clears throat> a question for all three of you, actually. If everything possible was available now in terms of mind or body enhancements of any type, would you choose to have them? Of what would you choose? And for you, Douglas, too. What would you choose, Rupert? <laughs> you first. Um, well, I haven't thought much about this. I mean, I've never <laughs> given a moment's thought to cosmetic surgery, hair transplants, uh, or any of those kinds of things. So. Uh, totally not on even on the map for me that sort of thing um, body enhancements yes exercises I'm in favor of that I do a few myself and some yoga and things mind enhancement yes more interested in that um, psychedelics yes 
uh, meditation, yes, a variety of spiritual practices. Actually, they are all available. One of the things I put, put forward in my book is we now have access to spiritual practices from almost all the world's traditions. You can do almost all of them in London, um, or anywhere else for that matter. And people just didn't know about these traditions until quite recently. So I think we actually, in that area, I think we're pretty close to the state you're talking about. Um, the only thing is, of course, we haven't got time to do them all. Um, so everything, whenever you've got everything available, then it becomes a question of very, the fact we only have a limited amount of time and attention. So um, your question was about choice. Then it becomes difficult to choose because there's so many things to choose among. Um, anyway, I do think that there are a lot of options available to us, and I think that some of them I mean, again, it depends on the person. Some people are more interested in one area or the other. But in the spiritual practices area, I think we're spoiled for choice at the moment, and many of them can be done very cheaply, simply, and are good for you. Well, we're spoiled, we're spoiled for choice until you get down to the cost. Every so often when, when I, you know, when I have a stroke of good luck, I get a little restyling, you know? It's, Filler? What? I'm vain. So, you're not? Sure you're not. Um, I would like my entire skeleton replaced with adamantium. <laughs> particularly my joints. I want all the joints replaced so that, um, to get rid of the osteoarthritis and the, uh, and the, I can't kneel anymore because my, skeleton got old. But um, I, would, I would like a greater capacity to remember because I couldn't even remember something in my own novel this evening. <laughs> my husband had to prompt me. Um, I, would like, uh, I would like a greater capacity to understand, you know, and I, I think that that can be, you know, increased with greater brain power, with greater processing power, I guess you'd call it. But what I would want, actually, was, was what Rupert mentioned, that you can't get with, you know, bodily enhancements, and that's time. Um, I'm not one for regrets, but I didn't kind of waste a lot of time when I was younger, and, uh, um, Sorry I wasted it, but, you know, it kind of paid off. In any case, I'd like to have that much time that I wasted, you know, replaced. Where do you go to get a time transplant? Mm -hmm. I'd like all those things, and um, if I had a, a, a kind of a superpower enhancement, it would be to, to be able to experience the whole of the human organism at once. To oh, be, God. You know what I mean? It would be really cool. Yeah, but not to, and, and to have enough compassion that it wouldn't kill me. You know, to be able to tolerate that. But yeah, I want to be, I, I still feel most of the time, I feel like an individuated human. I feel like my identity ends at the end of my body. You know, every once in a while I'll connect with someone and they'll be, you know, but it's like, that's such the exception. It'll happen, oh, that I want to somehow, Get, Get on that. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing the world together. 
So thank you, Pat Cadigan and Rupert Sheldrake, for playing on Team Human. Thanks to all of you for coming. All I ever wanted was a seat at the table, and tonight far exceeded what I ever expected to accomplish in this lifetime. You can find out more about our guests and their work and the other 90-some-odd people who've appeared on Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm. Click on support if you want to join the team, support the show, get access to premium content, and cool stuff like signed books and Team Human trading cards. Thanks again to Luke Robert Mason of Virtual Futures, JoJo's Bar and Stage, and Ivar Davies for manning the controls. Team Human is produced by Stephen Bartolome. Our community organizer is Josh Chapdelaine. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.